You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. And Wade, I have a hungry heart. You know, Kevin, somebody once said that everybody's got a hungry heart. Well, I guess there's nothing to do now except express our feelings in song form. Today in the episode, we'll be discussing The Boss and Gurinda Chadha's new film, Blinded by the Light. Well, that wasn't exactly in song form, but we'll go with it anyway. We're also going to be escaping to the world of Linklater with his latest film, an adaptation of the best-selling novel, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? It's rock stars and slackers here on this episode, episode 214 of Seeing and Believing. What do you want? A show that plays only Bruce Springsteen. Huh? Nothing but Springsteen. <laughs> That's your idea. Bruce has a lot to say to students in this college. How will they know there's something better out there if they don't hear it? My job is to play music that the students will connect to. Yeah, That means bros. That means curiosity. And yes, that even means Debbie Gibson. But Springsteen, he's more what your dad listens to. Not my dad. Yes, we are here seeing and believing, and that was a clip from Blinded by the Light. Kevin... We're going to be talking about two book adaptations today. And I feel like we've done that in the past, but it's it's been a little while. And they both discuss art. So, I don't know. I think there's I think there's a connection here. Yeah, we're we're doing we're being pretty classy today. We've got literary adaptations. Both of them are very artsy about creation and the joy of creating. So I've got like my tweed jacket on, those little brown elbow patches. Uh, my pipe is ready at hand, and I'm ready to go. And I I do need to probably let listeners know too that I am a I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. And so I was very excited about watching Blinded by the Light. And then listeners also know that I'm a big Richard Linklater fan. So this is kind of just, I don't know. I feel like I've been waiting for this episode for a while, Kevin. And it's, just, it's finally <laughs> Every, here. Everything is coming up Wade today. So <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy for you. <laughs> well, this week's episode begins with a trip to Asbury Park via Luton, England. Directed by Gurinda Chadha of Bend It Like Beckham fame, Blinded by the Light explores the music of Bruce Springsteen through the life of Javed, played by Vivek Kalra, a Pakistani teenager experiencing racism and economic turmoil in 1987. After being introduced to the boss, Javed finds a parallel between the working-class melodies of Springsteen's music and his own life. Javid might not have been born in the USA like Springsteen, but can music written by someone on the other side of the world still inspire him to follow his dreams? Kevin, I'm having way too much fun with Springsteen's song titles today, but they will all end, at least I will try to get them to end, after this introductory (laughs) question. Does Blinded by the Light for you make you feel like you were born to run or did it have the opposite effect did you feel like you were dancing in the dark given that dichotomy i'm not sure which is the good one and which is the bad one (laughs) as Um, as planned as as planned well done uh i will say though that i i enjoyed this film 
uh, quite a bit more though more so than I really expected. I don't have a whole lot of experience with Cha's films, but from the from the trailer i I wasn't necessarily expecting a whole lot out of this film and what I found in it was actually a a pretty affecting story about family and about a specific time and even more than that though what i most appreciate about this film is how chata really nails what it feels like to be a teenager and find that one thing that one piece of art that just really resonates with you and speaks to you and the boundless enthusiasm that you can develop for for something like that once you find it and Without being able to nail that uh, dynamic, this film wouldn't have worked at all. But because it does, it works pretty well. I don't think it's it's entirely a perfect film, but I had a really good time with it. And that's coming from someone who definitely appreciates the boss, but wouldn't necessarily define himself as terribly knowledgeable about his music, or and definitely not uh, a super fan like yourself, Wade. So I am curious to know what your opinion is, since... It, from the sounds of it, you might even have some shared experiences with Javed in this film. Yeah, no, it, it is it is fascinating that you bring up the the idea of, of that one pop cultural artifact that just kind of opens your mind. And I wrote down in my notes here, Kevin, uh, each person has their own Bruce. And I think that's true. And I think for me... Um, Bruce was my Bruce, right? Springsteen is someone that I definitely listened to kind of growing up, but as a young adult, just being drawn to his music first because I think it's just really catchy. And then really kind of diving into what his lyrics mean and the angst behind them. And I think this film, in some places, it is, is a little uneven, but it's it, it's infectious, and I think it's pretty well balanced. And we'll kind of get into that. But this film, I, I think, understands what makes Springsteen important to people and what makes art just in general important to people. And through that, instead of kind of walking away with this message of, hey, follow your dreams – the movie actually understands Springsteen's music and realizes that there's there's more to it than just escaping from New Jersey. And there's there's this really interesting scene where a character is kind of <laughs> just kind of flabbergasted that Javed likes Springsteen. They're all like, "Yeah, that's what your dad listens to." And he mentions, you know, born in the USA, and I think many people almost envision that song as this ultra patriotic hoorah song. And Javed corrects him and says, no, it's actually about people coming home from Vietnam. And it's actually very critical of the government. And I, I think that's a good example of how this film kind of digs into the music and the lyrics of Springsteen and then tells in many ways, his story through someone else. So this is almost like a biopic, but very different from a biopic, if, if that makes sense. Well, just as it's unexpected that uh, a, a Pakistani teenager in England would get into Springsteen in a big way, as the other characters in this film 
are pointing out time and time again. It's also a little bit unexpected that Chada with this film doesn't make a wholly uncritical embrace of the the kind of mindset that it would be really easy to go with with this kind of film. So the sort of chase your dreams, you know, don't let your your place of origin keep you down. You can be whatever you want to be. You just need to uh, you know, be an artist and appreciate art and just and just go for it. And, you know, I think back to a film like Sing Street, which overall I think is the better film, but that film is a lot more more romantic in its view of what it means to grow up and what it means to sort of strike out on your own and, you know, leave it all behind. Uh, in, in Sing Street, that's a it's it's almost entirely a positive when at the end of the film the main character sort of escapes with uh, the girl of his dreams and they kind of go off into the great unknown. That's a, a moment of triumph for him. Blinded by the Light has a much more nuanced view of both what it what it means to be rooted in a culture and in a family, and also how escape is both something to be ardently desired, but it's also something that you can never fully do and still be truthful to who you are. And that's something that Springsteen himself kind of understands in his music. And it's something that Chada, with these characters, um, and also writing from, of course, the the memoir of the main character, who's you know telling his own story of uh, his Springsteen obsession, that is a much more, in a lot of ways, much more truthful and realistic view of what life is like. That even when you do chase your dreams, you never stop being your your father and mother's child. You never stop uh, being a person with the ethnic or social background that you have. Those will always go with you. And if you try to abandon them, that's in some sense living a lie. And that's something that Javed kind of learns over the course of this film. And something that elevates it from being kind of a very stock story of triumphing over your hard scrapple past into something that's a lot more complex and feels a lot more, it makes the moments of triumph feel a lot more earned. No, I, I think it does. And I think that takes a story which could probably be cliche at times and by the end brings everything together i'm reminded of a joke that springsteen makes in his springsteen on broadway production which is on netflix and he talks about just wanting to get away from new jersey and wanting to get away from his home and he never wanted to come back and then he says you know now i live like 10 minutes from where i grew up and i think the film kind of understands that sentiment and there's a line and is the line the most poetic line ever written no but it's true success without family isn't really success and this film is not afraid to in many ways critique javed's family and perhaps the way they go about uh, their lives but also understands that there's a quality there that should not be left behind. Something yeah, that it doesn't we... it doesn't let Javid off the hook for his Springsteen obsession. It's not an unqualified good for him. And he learns 
that sometimes the way he lives out his dreams can be selfish and even a little obsessive at times, uh, which is is fascinating to kind of watch and, and to see how, yeah, this person, by following, quote unquote, their dreams or doing what they want, can actually hurt the people around them. And we must continually uh, critique or examine those dreams. Yeah, there's uh, and a motif that crops up a few times throughout this film of the, the old family car that Javid's family uh, has. It's this beat up old clunker. It's a, a yellow car. It, it doesn't start up all the time. And at the beginning of the film, the way that Javid's father has to start up the car in order to drop Javid off at school and then get to work himself is the entire family has to get behind the car and sort of push it out of the parking space while he steers and then, you know, push it towards the road until he gets up enough steam to make the engine turn over. And then, of course, you know, Javid has to run and, and jump in and off they go. And there's a later scene where Javid, after having this this very heated exchange with his family in frustration runs out to the car and sits <laughs> down in in the driver's seat and turns it he's just going to you know he's going to run away he's going to go off and do his own thing and the car won't start and there's nobody there to push it out of the parking space for him and i think that's such an elegant way of of encapsulating the family dynamic here and how complex it is that in one sense yes javid and the rest of his family kind of do have to knuckle under to his father at times. The father is the head of the household. He kind of tells everybody what to do, and that's difficult and oppressive for them at times. But also, nobody gets anywhere without the rest of the family sort of supporting them and pushing them forward from behind. And that's a balance that Chada strikes really deftly through that image, and it elevates the portrait of Pakistani family life in England in 1980s Thatcher's England, uh, that makes it all the more compelling. Yeah, it, and it's, that scene is is really great, and it's funny too because when he can't start the car, you almost feel like he's in a prison. He he can't leave. He can't run away, even if he wanted to run away. And then also the imagery of well, in order to go out and to follow his dreams, he needs the help of his family. And I think all of us need that as we go about our lives. I really appreciate what Chada does here with Springsteen's songs. And obviously I enjoy them. So it's almost like this, this sing along. We get some really fun sequences. And when the main character is introduced to Springsteen's music, we get a little bit of, of dancing in the dark and then uh, promised land. And outside, the words are kind of appearing, the lyrics are appearing on the screen, and it's raining, and we get some very artistic-type shots of uh, his sort of shadow against a concrete wall, and then he's kind of leaning up against uh, brick, and he is uh, walking inside his house, and he's seeing scenes from his life, and he's kind of pushing things around. And I felt like she did a, a really good job of capturing the emotion of hearing a song that really does speak to you because when you when you listen to a song that that really understands your angst people looking in from the outside they just see you listening to that song but on the inside 
things are happening, and we get to see some of those things happen. And then also later on in the film, we get these, and I don't know if it's a, if it's correct to say this, but these almost sort of Bollywood moments where the characters are singing and they're dancing, and we know this isn't actually happening, but it's a good represent, representation of what's going on between these friendships and what's going on inside of these individuals and how this music is empowering them and how Javed will listen to a song and he'll suddenly become brave because of the emotion expressed in that song. And then, you know, I mentioned a second ago, we all have our own Bruce. There's this this good sequence where Javed sees uh, his sister and he sees... I guess the best way to explain it is he sees her Bruce. He sees the art form that empowers her. And while this film is kind of all about Springsteen's music, it also understands that it's different for everyone and that we all have those empowering moments. And it doesn't just tell us that. I think visually, it does a good job of representing that. Yeah, I do appreciate that that touch that you mentioned where uh J- Javed goes to that kind of nightclub only it's during the day with his sister and has that experience because it makes it clear that you know Bruce Springsteen isn't the be all and end all of this kind of connection with a powerful piece of music it's something that I kind of wish that Danny Boyle's yesterday had maybe hinted at a little bit more like you know that the Beatles aren't the be all and end all the Springsteen isn't the you know the genius for everyone he's just a genius and there's multiple ways of achieving that kind of uh, aesthetic elevation that Java does find with Springsteen. I'm a little bit mixed with the with the musical sequences that that you describe. Some of them I think work like gangbusters. The initial sequence where Javed is listening to Springsteen for the first time and you see the actual uh, lyrics of the song superimposed over the screen and there's various text effects to kind of mirror what the, the way that they're working on Javed himself, uh, the way that we see lightning flashing and projected against the sides of buildings as he's walking down the street singing along to these Springsteen songs. That's a really effective sequence and it's really cinematic way to depict how art can work on someone. This is something that you and I have kind of talked about off and on a lot recently, I feel like, with films like Rocket Man and Bohemian Rhapsody, about how they they succeed or fail at depicting cinematically the way that a piece of art can work internally on someone. I think that overall and that's in that sequence, Chada does a great job of doing that. The more fan kind of the fantasy sequences, I guess, where there's more people involved and there's kind of, you know, dance numbers of a sort. Those fell a little bit flat for me. I I don't think that Chatter really finds the kind of in her editing and in the framing there's there's not enough of a of a break there to make it clear just how literally we're meant to be taking those sequences like our could because some of the people are interacting with Javed kind of on his own terms, you know, his girlfriend and his best friend are dancing with him and they kind of know why he's dancing that way and why he's being elevated by the music of Springsteen. When bystanders come in and start dancing with them, it's a little bit unclear 
how much of a fantasy this is meant to be, whether we're we're literally seeing Javid draw them into his jubilation or whether it's sort of more of a cinematic uh, symbolic indication of the way that he's seeing the world because of Springsteen. And I think that that's mostly a failure just of the, of the filmmaking that that distinction isn't made clear enough by Chada and her directing in the same way that say, Von Trier's Dancer in the Dark does with its musical numbers or or even Sing Street again where there is this very clear delineation between the internal life that the characters are experiencing through their music and kind of the actual literal world that that we see in other parts of the film. So while I don't think those moments are entirely successful, I do appreciate that they're that they're in there, and it does at least approximate the kind of feeling that you get from just being entirely wrapped up in this piece of of music or art or whatever it is that speaks to you personally. And I think Chada does capture that very well in those moments, even if individual sequences may not be as as well filmed as as they could have been. No, I, I think I get that. I, I think I, I like those sequences. I I mentioned kind of unevenness, and perhaps what it is is that the the big song moments are kind of different from each other. So you get sometimes there are words on the screen, sometimes not. And and like I said, I think they're all pretty good. I think they're these kind of crowd pleasing musical numbers that definitely put a smile on my face, but I could see some unevenness there. I think there are a couple of subplots. There's one with his friend Matt that I'm not sure works very well. And then the film does sort of balance out this very serious racism and economic turmoil that Javed's family is experiencing. And I think that packs an emotional punch at some points. I'm not sure if all of it is fully integrated at times. And so I, I, I do acknowledge that there is, there is an unevenness there, but there's also some, some moments where the film just finds a fantastic way to mix that crowd pleasing element with the emotional journey of the characters. And that happens especially towards the end. And that's less on like this national level. And it's more just with Javed and his family. We get some really good scenes near the end of the picture. Yeah, there's a, a key moment with between Javed and his English teacher who's kind of trying to mentor him as he stumbles his way toward putting his own thoughts on paper and becoming a writer. She tells him, she's played by by Haley Atwell, who I'm always happy to see in anything, but uh, she tells him, you have a responsibility to make this invisible voice of yours heard. He's uh, been taken to task by her in the past for not really quote unquote writing from the heart that he's not really finding his true voice and that it's not just good for him to make that voice heard and make that perspective heard but it's a responsibility it's almost a moral responsibility for him to make that voice heard in the same way that springsteen uh had a had a responsibility to make his voice heard that it brings this entire world to life for someone who might be on the outside looking in and through that uh, other people are able to experience that viewpoint and sometimes be be quite moved by it i was 
really moved by some of the scenes with uh, Javid's father, who would have been so easy to turn into kind of this stock disapproving father cliche, you know, where he's, you know, he's always just getting in the way and he just doesn't understand. And, you know, maybe he loves me, but, you know, he's kind of more of a plot device than an actual character. But as played in, in this film, uh, he's just, he's uh, a very complicated figure. He's somebody who really both wants to really integrate into England, but also doesn't want his son to be English. He wants his son to be successful, but he also doesn't want his son to do what he's best at. And that kind of push and pull is really interesting. And there's a scene also where he's getting his, you know, some black hair dye combed into his hair by his wife and the conversation they have there where he he says, you know, it wasn't supposed to be like this. It wasn't it wasn't supposed to be the case that, you know, my son's really interested in this American singer and wants to be a writer and I've lost my job even though I worked really hard. It wasn't supposed to be this way. And that's a really touching moment that is in in a lesser film of this version would not be in there or would have been glossed over in favor of staying with with Javed himself and I think that's that's a strength of of Chada's directing and also of the screenplay written by Sarfraz Manzur and Palmieta Burgess um just the way that it balances all of these things and for the most part I think does them justice I you you mentioned that you didn't feel like the more the, the portraits of the, the political unrest were fully integrated. I felt like that was kind of a part of a, of a whole with, with the entire film depicting this entire social milieu that explained why Javid was so taken with Springsteen's music besides it just being really good music. Yeah. I think, um, I think there's definitely this, this environment that helps us to understand not just this, oh, you know, oh, dad, I just want to go play rock and roll kind of deal. And, but there are these legitimate challenges that he faces. And I appreciate how you mentioned Javed's dad is allowed to be human and he gets his scenes in and he does a fantastic job. I'll say this is kind of a small note, but there's, there's kind of service given to Javed's uh, training as a writer in the sense that he, for, for seven years, he writes in a journal every single day. And then we see on his wall all of these poems that he's written, all of these pieces that he's written. And it never feels like this instantaneous, uh, you know, automatic, uh, uh, talent experience that allows him to write, but he's really kind of put in the work. And it's not just a flash. And I do, I do appreciate that aspect of the movie as well. Listeners, that's our review of Blinded by the Light. We would love to hear your thoughts, whether you are a Springsteen fan or you're not a Springsteen fan. You can tweet us at SeaBeliefPod, at SeaBeliefPod. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be reviewing Richard Linklater's newest film here in just a bit.
That song is Lifescapes by Cliff Clavin. You know, Kevin, I really appreciate everyone who supports us like Javed supports Springsteen via our <laughs> Patreon page. And I'm sure, I'm sure people, they pull up their podcast app, they listen to our podcast, and it inspires them. To go out, oh, sure. follow their dreams, and be brave. I mean, oh, sh- oh, sure. I'm sure there are people like you know they're, they've got their you know their wireless ear pods in, and they're just running down the street, shouting at the top of their lungs, along with us as we review, uh, you know, the Lion King or whatever. I'm sure that there's somebody out there right now who's just can't contain themselves every time our voices come through the ear earbud earbuds yeah so. yeah i don't know if they are shouting because they agree or because they disagree uh, oh of course they agree yeah they, well i'm we i'm hope. guessing the sort of person to like charge down the city streets would be so inspired by our genius that it would you know they couldn't help but but agree with all of our opinions. <laughs> I have not heard of any reports of that happening, though. So if that is you somewhere out there, listener, please let us know. It will make us feel very good to know that there's somebody out there uh, having that experience with the show. <laughs> you know, Kevin, this is totally random. But remember the movie Drive with Ryan Gosling? Sure, there sure. Was, there was a guy who went to a golf tournament and tried to throw a hot dog at Tiger Woods. And he got arrested, and he said, I saw the movie Drive and was inspired to do something big. And <laughs> I only imagine that we inspire people in that same way. Ho- hopefully not to uh, throw hot dogs at celebrities, although, I mean, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't judge. But <laughs> I-, I would hope that the people who are inspired by seeing and believing uh, – aspire to greater heights than than throwing uh fast food at people yeah so, but yeah we and, we want you know like, this 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 guy who threw that at tiger woods you know you do you man <laughs> you do you we i would be cool if somebody like we inspired caviar or filet mignon or something something a little Ooh. bit you know bigger and better listeners we appreciate you supporting us on patreon if we inspire you a lot of great levels of support one of those levels is the what can you buy for five dollar level kevin i can only imagine after the conversation we're having right now what your answer is going to be but what (laughs) what could our listeners buy for five bucks uh, five bucks would get you some custom Monopoly pieces that are Ingmar Bergman themed. So instead of the little <laughs> shoe, you'd have like the the black cloaked figure of death from the Seventh Seal. You'd have maybe like a a bear cross with no Christ on it. Uh, maybe you you would have like the the weird faceless guy from the Nightmare sequence in Wild Strawberries. So five bucks would would enhance your games of monopoly immeasurably in that way and and so the properties you would buy would be existential angst and impending death those would be like the the properties you would purchase in that game the the nagging silence of god would be in the boardwalk space yeah yeah i mean that would be an entire monopoly set that'll run you a little bit more than five dollars but i'm sure it's out there for uh enterprising bergman fans yeah, it'll go good with the chess set from the Seventh Seal. <laughs> so indeed, indeed, Bergman wow, he well, inspires so many board games. It's just crazy. I, I mean, 
one could argue that the mere experience of playing Monopoly mirrors the purgatory-like <laughs> existence of that that many Bergman characters uh, undergo in, over the course of his films. But hey, you know, I'm not here to make board game judgments today. Listeners, if you would like to spend $5 on us instead of on that amazing-sounding Bergman Monopoly experience, you can, of course go to our Patreon page. Nope, sorry. Yes, listeners, you can do that. Just hop on to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Kevin, I echo you. Monopoly (laughs) is horrible. I hate Monopoly. It's absolutely terrible. But... I, I can't remember if, if I've if I've said this joke on the show on a previous episode before or not, but you know somebody a wise man once said that if you took uh, a million monopoly boards, this is an interesting statistic, and you stacked each board end to end, by the time you had finished, you would have had more fun than you would have had if you had actually <laughs> played monopoly. You know. What's even better, too, is McDonald's Monopoly. We haven't even gotten into that. Uh, Maybe one day we will. Listeners, (laughs) support us on Patreon. We very much appreciate it. And then I was going to say, you know, we hate Monopoly. And here's my segue. But we love listener feedback. I'll throw it to you. (laughs) As far as the East is from the West, so is the misery of Monopoly to the joy of (laughs) listener emails. Uh, We heard again from uh, Ron Sturry, a longtime listener and a frequent correspondent of ours. He uh, wanted to chip in uh, his two cents regarding our top five films of 2009 segment from from last week. Uh, Ron had a couple of favorites. He wanted to know why there was no love for Precious or Up in the Air on our list. He says, I liked them both a lot, but I'm glad you recognize The Secret of Kells. My family saw that at the Traverse City Film Festival. A wonderful experience. Love your reviews, Ron. Thanks so much for writing in, Ron. And I am curious to know, Wade, if Precious or Up in the Air figured it all into uh, your list making. Well, I haven't seen Precious. So now my list has suddenly become suspect. But I have seen Up in the Air. I I thought it was fine. I thought it was... It, it, it's not in my top 10 or top 15 but i think overall i did i did like it and um it's definitely a film i I think i would i would recommend uh recommend to people it's just it it just didn't make its way high enough on you know on this year with a lot of number of good films so that's yeah that's where i stand yeah i actually like up in the air quite a bit and i did consider it for for my top five list it was you know it simply got pushed out because there were other films that that I liked a lot more, but Up in the Air I think is a is a strong film and maybe a little bit of an underrated one nowadays. Like it it did get a little bit of Oscar attention at the time, but as time has passed, it's kind of been forgotten and maybe a little bit unjustly. Precious, I you know I don't know if if your list is is suspect for leaving that one off, Wade. Um, I think Precious is a handful of really great performances in a pretty bad movie. Like I I think the performances are really great. Monique deserved the Oscar attention she got. Mariah Carey 
does a, mm. a really great job in his supporting role as a social worker. And of course, Gaburi Sidibe, uh, I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm murdering that name, but she is also very good as, as the central character. It's just, I guess it's just a shame that the film around them didn't match their talents. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I just, I haven't got around to it. Maybe, yeah, maybe one day I will. I, I will have to say this, Kevin. I, I had so much fun doing that episode last week. I just thought it was great to talk about our top five and it, we've done it three years. We mentioned it, you know, we've done it three years in a row, but I'm already thinking about 2010 and like, oh yeah, I can't wait to, I can't wait to do it again. So yeah, it's, it's always a fun episode when we do that. Thank you, Ron, for the feedback. And also Ron wrote in last week and told us we needed to see Blinded by the Light. He said he, he really enjoyed it and uh, hopefully he's happy yeah, that we enjoyed it too. <laughs> Listeners, Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod on Twitter, or seeing and believing capc at gmail.com. You know, what LG doesn't know is that I am still obsessing about L.A. What do you mean? You know, just last night, right? I woke up to pee. You know, I'm half asleep. I'm a blank slate. And then the data starts... Reloading. It's a Bernadette Fox. 20-mile house. Destroyed. Failed. Yeah. And it's like failure has got its teeth in me, and it won't stop shaking. You done? Yeah. Yeah, good, because I know you can't honestly believe any of this nonsense. As amusing as it is, it obscures the larger point, which is that people like you must create. That's what you were brought into this world to do, Bernadette. If you don't... You become a menace to society. Well, Wade, I feel like we went on a little bit of a a journey in in that middle segment, mm-hmm. talking about everything from Bergman <laughs> to spiritual angst to the peculiar purgatory, I guess you could say, of playing Monopoly. It was it was just freewheeling yes. enough that it might have been worthy of a link later film all on its own. <laughs> yeah, it's it, the sequel to Slacker. Some of the characters <laughs> make their way to us and they just listen to a conversation like that and then one of us bangs in, you know, we walk into somebody else and the camera then follows them. I think it could make for a good two, three minutes of screen time, personally. Yeah, I, I'm behind that. But in this second segment, we are going to be reviewing an actual Linklater film, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Starring Kate Blanchett as the title character, Bernadette Fox, Linklater's adaptation of the popular novel by Maria Simple has a lot of Linklater's trademarks, not least of which are the loquacious, intelligent characters at the film center. Bernadette is a genius architect, literally, since she received a MacArthur Genius Grant, who is undergoing a bit of a midlife crisis as she lives in Seattle with her tech giant husband, played by Billy Crudup, and precocious daughter, played by newcomer Emma Nelson. Creatively stifled and struggling to fit the mold of the upper-class family woman of the world around her, Bernadette's fierce intellect and appetite for novelty begin to morph into erratic behavior and reclusive tendencies. As her family's long-planned trip to Antarctica nears, Bernadette struggles with the competing desires to be there for her family, but also to escape a lifestyle that is driving her crazy, figuratively at least. So, Wade, this is obviously a Linklater film, and you are obviously the big Linklater fan of, of our duo. I like him quite a bit, but I don't know if my appreciation for him can hold a candle to yours. So my question for you is, 
to get this discussion started off is pretty simple. How did you think that Where'd You Go, Bernadette stacks up among the rest of the films in Linklater's filmography? I think that's a really good question. I, I'm i of the opinion that Linklater does have some some stinkers. Uh, for instance, Bad News Bears, not a huge fan of that. So he's made some films that I don't enjoy. I really do appreciate what he's done for indie filmmaking. And then just on a personal level, what he's done for Texas filmmaking. And we see individuals like uh, Jeff Nichols, Robert Rodriguez, these individuals that have been, I think, influenced by him or have collaborated with him to influence other filmmakers in in the region. And so, I, I, yeah, I do appreciate all that he's done for the area. I think this film, it's been called kind of his stinker by a lot of people. I don't think it's as bad as some people uh, have said it is. I think the film is kind of mixed. I think it is kind of uneven. But I found myself enjoying it more than I thought I would. And essentially, this this doesn't always feel like a Linklater picture. And I think some of the cinematography, the digital cinematography does that. But the story is about an individual who doesn't seem to fit in with everybody else. They have these great artistic aspirations, and they're trying to find a way to do that in a consumeristic culture. And I think Bernadette is that person. So this, at, at in some points, it feels like a traditional Linklater film. In other points, it doesn't. But I, I think there are some pretty good moments, especially as we think about the par- pursuit of artistic integrity and then just the way that artists can get in a rut. And I, I wonder too if this is slightly autobiographical with Linklater, uh, someone who, I don't know, maybe he feels like he's gone through moments where he's been in a rut and uh, people haven't understood him and maybe he hasn't understood himself. So I, I think that's a possibility too. Well, Wade, uh, hmm. yeah. I'm not going to say that this is Linklater's worst film, but that's only because I haven't seen every single one of his films yet. <laughs> it's certainly the worst Linklater film that I've seen. I really had a hard time with this picture. And I really, it's odd that in a lot of ways, it doesn't seem like Linklater is playing to his his strengths with this film. There's There's kind of a level of whimsy in this film that doesn't feel... It feels a little bit anonymous, almost as if somebody other than Linklater was directing it. I I think that a lot of his films do have a level of whimsy to them. I think of you know maybe Bernie, for example, um, that you know he he definitely has a an aptitude for portraying characters with a certain level of of whimsy to them, but in very grounded ways. This film felt. There was an artifice to it, I guess, that I really did not find myself on the same wavelength as. And I, I have to wonder if maybe Linklater was having the same problem. This There's a lot of this film that just plain doesn't work. And I think back to, um, you know, for instance, the, the before films where, you know, Jesse and Celine are you know, these hyper-articulate 
uh, characters. They they talk fast and, and they spin a lot of ideas and they're shooting the breeze. And not everything that they say is is you know mind blowingly intelligent or you know completely uh, to be taken seriously. And you get the sense maybe that the characters themselves don't take themselves all that seriously. They kind of wear their their intellect lightly and their musings are maybe half serious. Or if they're fully serious, they're at least serious, but they wear it lightly. In Where'd You Go, Bernadette, there's kind of the sense that I get from this film that the screenplay really wants us to see Bernadette as as a sympathetic, extremely formidable woman who is sort of trapped by the world around her, but nothing we really see on screen fully bears that out. And at least in terms of what we see, Blanchett's character, uh, while we get this a lot of lip service paid to, you know, some of the trauma that she's undergone and how she feels creatively stifled in Seattle, there's not really a whole lot that we actually see that makes it makes that seem like a justified response to to her situation there doesn't seem to be anything that's particularly stopping her from creating um and yet we kind of hear over and over that it's her environs that are kind of stifling her or her or billy crudup's husband character who's kind of not appreciating her but everything we see kind of makes it seem like her life is okay so we don't really there's something not quite gelling here in Linklater's. Uh, adaptation of the novel, and then in his directing of the the script that he's adapted, it's just there, there's something that's not quite working for me here. And when it kind of descends into this much less grounded family adventure to Antarctica, that's kind of when when I jumped ship and and really turned on this movie. I did not like it at all, so I, I'm I'm sorry to uh, be the the voice of negativity here, but there it is. Yeah, it, it, this film does have its problems, and I think the the start of the movie for me is pretty strong, and it makes this turn with uh, let's just say law enforcement. Maybe that's the best way to say it without giving anything away. And the law enforcement agent is I think what you're describing here and I and I I get what you're what you're saying what you said earlier that this film struggles to balance the sort of whimsical uh carefree nature with the serious and so you get this law enforcement agent who feels out of place in his character among the rest and you get a storyline that feels out of place given where the movie has been and everything sort of escalates from there, and it almost it almost feels like there's two films that are happening. I, I think, though, and maybe this is Blanchett's performance, but I, I feel like the movie – I feel like the movie understands her faults, but also understands the perspective of the people outside of her. And the movie is not altogether sympathetic – of of Bernadette we see what her what her family's going through and we see okay maybe her husband is taking it too far but he has a right to be concerned and then we see her perspective well yeah he seems to be taking it too far and uh maybe you just need help in in a different in a different way i think the idea of 
her character kind of being in a rut. And, and we see her house, right? Her house is this metaphor. It's um, kind of being overgrown with these blackberry bushes, and they're starting to climb through the walls and through the floors. And that's what her life feels like. She feels kind of constricted. And that works for me because I think the banality of life does that. And so it, it doesn't necessarily have to be this huge event or this or that or whatever. It's just the everyday nature of life sometimes sucks away our creativity to where, the, to where it's, you know, on the outside, it's like, well, just get going again. But on the inside, it feels like we are being slowly constricted. So I think that works. But I, I mean, Kevin, I do agree. This is a movie that does have flaws. And I think a good portion of that is in the adaptation and the script. I haven't read the book, but the script feeling like it's it's disjointed and maybe it would have worked better with, with a screenplay that 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 felt a little more at liberty to shed some of these these side ideas and just really dig into her character and what she's going through and just this internal turmoil that she feels whether or not it's it's truly there yeah i mean so i have read the book um this was a book actually that my book club read together a while back and it's the the interesting thing about the novel is that it's 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 an epistolary novel so ev- everything in it takes the form of uh, or, or most of it takes the form of like letters or or diary entries um there there's not a whole lot of what we think of in a a more traditional novel where it's you know there there's narration and you kind of get into the head of the character it's all viewed through personal writing and, and personal correspondence or at least bernadette is we kind of see bernadette only through the eyes of of others and through the letters that she writes himself writes himself and through the letters that she writes herself so in in a book that kind of works because as a reader you're kind of you're you're reading between the lines and you're you're kind of putting together this portrait of Bernadette based on interpreting you know what she unwittingly reveals about herself uh, and what she reveals about herself kind of on purpose to others and that kind of works to make her into a full flesh fully fleshed out character because you understand while reading the book that you're not seeing her in unguarded moments you're only really seeing her in moments of self-presentation when she's for example writing an email to this personal assistant that she has uh, overseas so that kind of it allows her to be more sympathetic because in her in the moments where she's perhaps a little bit less sympathetic or maybe a little bit dismissive of the other people in her life you understand that this isn't the way she is all the time. With Linklater's adaptation though, he kind of loses that remove. It's less abstracted and it's more immediate. So instead of seeing Bernadette uh, only through her correspondence, we see Bernadette herself say these things out loud with her mouth to other human beings, and it's it's really off-putting, and it makes the parts of the movie that really want us to see her as an exceptional person who should be sympathized with, it makes it a lot harder to take. I guess the, the way I would put it is this movie has a really bad case of Ferris Bueller syndrome, where it kind of portrays this exceptional person as being freed from the obligations 
of seeing other people as fully human simply because they're exceptional. You know, like the, this character is exceptional. And so it's okay for them to sort of look down on everyone around them and, and essentially live this almost charmed life. And it seems as if Linklater is spending a lot of energy in trying to make Bernadette as this really charismatic, likable presence when she isn't really that way. And it's not that she has to be that way, but it seems as if that's the perspective on her that Linklater's film wants us to take. And that's really a problem. I mean, I don't, I don't walk away from the movie or while I'm watching the movie think, oh, this person is is really great and people just don't understand her. I... I watching the movie think to myself, yeah, I'd be annoyed if I lived next door to her too. I think what keeps her character from just being, you know, someone we dislike is Blanchett's performance. I think is I think she does a fantastic job of taking a character who could be just just horrible. Uh, to to watch for a couple hours and to to make her likable. I don't know if the, I wouldn't say the film though uh, lets her off the hook. I think the film kind of understands where she's going through and realizes that hey, like we all have our role in life, and when we get out of that role, when we get out, she gets out of her artistic role, she becomes, and they say, a menace to society. And so we have to fulfill our purpose, or. Uh, we're going to end up taking that out on the people around us and hurting them. I, I wanted to talk briefly about one aspect of the film I do wish would have been expanded, but I think it's it's worth discussing when we talk about Linklater. Linklater is not necessarily – he's not a – I guess we, what you could say is someone concerned, necessarily concerned with – uh, religious matters or deeply spiritual matters. But he's always, throughout his movies, he's always had this sort of respect for religion. And I'm thinking uh, in particular in uh, Before Midnight, uh, the two characters go into this, I believe it's like this church, and uh, they're thinking about, talking to themselves about, hey, being respectful while they're there. And I, I think that's a, that's a good illustration of Linklater, just – thinking about religion and talking about religion in a respectful way, even though his films wouldn't imply that he has a you know particular religious perspective. And here we get this talk of Bernadette and the saint, I guess Saint Bernadette, and the 16 visions that she has. And that Bernadette, the character has these creative visions that she must fulfill. And I just, I, I don't know if I have too much to add to that other than I I kind of, uh, uh, you know, perked my ears up watching those conversations um, because it, it definitely feels like there is this sort of respect for religion and also this idea of of purpose that we do have a purpose and we do have this almost spiritual artistic abilities within us that we do need to fulfill um, if we want to be happy or maybe even a better word is content uh, in life. Yeah, I mean, that's something, that's a thread that I think could have been compelling in a movie that actually attempts to take it seriously. I don't think that 
this film with kind of its its whimsical, you know, screwball patter and the film is, is almost self-congratulatory uh of of special people, I guess. The the idea that, you know, an, an artist just needs to create and if they can't they're a menace to society. Well, no, that's not really that's kind of a nice sounding thing, but it's kind of I don't think that's a that's actually very true to the way an artist's responsibility is actually lived out. Like that can be true, but that's not a a responsible way to live. And it's not a way that I think really truly reckons with the way a, an artist lives in the world and does their work. I think in the way that Where'd You Go Bernadette descends into kind of this this family romp where we're all where we're racing towards antarctica and they're hanging out with penguins and stealing boats and wearing fishing vests and you know stowing away and getting into this high security research facility that's all kind of the province of a more whimsical family romp which is which is okay but it makes me less sympathetic towards the parts of the movie that attempt to reckon seriously with what an artist's responsibilities are to herself and to the world around her and Linklater just does not finesse that divide really at all and it destabilizes the entire movie and you know I, I guess as I've probably made clear by now it makes Bernadette herself a pretty unsympathetic presence in a film that pretty clearly wants us to see her as someone great if we are of course to take the daughter's perspective on her as somebody wonderful seriously and i i just i simply can't take that seriously in the film that link has given us well i i will uh mention other areas um that i thought were weak with the film i i think that link later has always had an interesting eye with the camera and I wouldn't say that he's given us necessarily these these splendid images or pristine images, but he's given us earthy images. And it feels a little strange to watch him here uh, with th- this very digital photography and a what I feel like is is kind of a mostly uninspired visual sense there are a couple images that i think are that you know work well Uh, one of those is bernadette kind of surrounded by amazon packages and perhaps we could talk about the use of specific corporation names and business names in this this uh, picture and the idea of uh, just cookie cutter approach to life to buying things to uh, renovating our houses, the spaces that we live in, it, it's just, it's all one size fits all. And Bernadette is obviously someone who sees life differently, but it's affected her. Uh, other than some of those images, I, I was just kind of unimpressed. There's a great opening image with kayaks, but after that, I just, I, I guess I would have, I, I would have wanted to see Linklater be a little more adventurous here, uh, with his camera and, he, I wouldn't say maybe that's asking too much based on who he is as a filmmaker. Um, but yeah, the the cinematography for the most part just didn't work for me. 
that, that's part of what I'm talking about when, when I said earlier that this film felt a little bit anonymous to me uh, coming from Linklater. And a lot of that does have to do with the style of the film, which doesn't seem like... It doesn't seem like the the product of the same guy who, you know, filmed the uh, scene in Before Sunrise where Jesse and Selene are in that music booth kind of listening to music together. It doesn't seem to have been shot by the, the same guy who made those those hangout scenes and everybody wants some um, or kind of the, the lo-fi vibe of Slacker. It just feels a little bit bland and it it is there's not a lot of distinctiveness to it i guess which is a, a big disappointment from a director that i think like you said even if he's not a director known for being very stylized with the way he uses the camera he at least you watch a link later film and you generally kind of get a vibe from him right away and i didn't really get that vibe from him it's almost as if he in his anxiety to adapt the source material faithfully, both failed to really capture the nuances of that work and also maybe lost himself a little bit. It's it's unfortunate. So are you saying that he has become Bernadette? He's lost himself uh, in the middle of that. I, I don't know. <laughs> where'd you go, Linklater? Uh, where'd you go, Richard Linklater? Yeah, you know, sure, why not? <laughs> Listeners, that's our review of Where'd You Go, Bernadette, as always. Like I said, we would love to hear your thoughts. Email us or reach out to us on Twitter. Kevin, we've reached the end of the show. This is where you and I recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. And I'm excited to hear what you are going to recommend today because there are all different kinds of options. And I'm looking forward to hearing (laughs) your thoughts. Well, I was thinking about Blinded by the Light's uh, portrayal of this father-son dynamic. That, and you know, in our review, I I said that I found a lot to like about that, and it was making me think about another one of uh, another film that I like quite a bit, partly because of its portrayal of a father-son relationship. I really like Joe Johnston's 1999 film, October Sky. This is a film starring Jake Gyllenhaal in uh, his star-making role. Uh, I remember seeing him for the first time thinking, man, that guy's really great. He's going to have a great career someday. And <laughs> um, but it's it's got a great cast overall. Chris Cooper plays his father. Um, they uh, Cooper is a coal miner in, in West Virginia uh, who heads up a coal mine and Hall plays his son who harbors dreams of becoming essentially a rocket scientist. He has his imagination fired by the launching of the Russian satellite Sputnik in the 1950s, and he sets himself to learning all that he can about rocketry and the science that goes with that. And he and a group of friends uh, come together to sort of start their own rocket building club and they start researching uh, these matters and building their own rockets, hoping to find a way kind of out of the coal miner small town that that they all live in and which, as Laura Dern's school teacher says, most of them, you know, don't get out. So I really like this film for a lot of reasons. I think it's got an incredible soundtrack. I think Johnston's filmmaking, as usual, is on point. 
But the relationship between Gyllenhaal's Homer Hickam and Chris Cooper as his father is just really finely drawn and manages to strike kind of the same balance that I pointed out with the father-son dynamic in Blinded by the Light. There's a lot of tension there, but there is also a, a deep and abiding affection that even if uh, the father can't fully articulate it, is nevertheless there. And it does culminate in in a scene where they kind of manage to find this wordless common ground with each other, even though their lives are kind of diverging and heading in opposite directions. So I think it's a really great film. Uh, pretty underrated, but it's it's a good one. And uh, family-friendly, too, if you're looking for something to to watch with with the whole family. So October Skies is my pick for this week. I mean, you know, it's so weird that I, I've not seen that movie and I, there have been times when family members have watched the movie and I've, you know, seen like a minute of it, but I've never actually watched the movie, but I keep hearing from people that it's underrated and that I should, I should check it out. So, uh, I, I need to definitely do that. You know, Kevin, I was thinking through my recommendation and just have, a couple of individuals on this podcast we talked about on this podcast I really enjoy uh, Richard Linklater and I so I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend two films this is this is kind of outside my comfort zone but I'm gonna do it Kevin uh, one is a documentary from 2014 called 21 Years Richard Linklater it's directed by Michael Dunaway and Tara Wood and this is a documentary you can watch it on Amazon Prime I wouldn't say it's a great documentary but we get to see, we get to hear from uh, actors and individuals who have worked with Richard Linklater, and they just talk about his career. They talk about his movies. Uh, Ethan Hawke's there, uh, Matthew McConaughey, is, as well as many, many others. And it's just, it's just kind of fun to hang out with these people and to hear them discuss Linklater and to hear them discuss. Linklater's impressions on them uh, and how they've inspired them and uh, just to hear stories from behind the scenes. So it's, it's, a, it's a film you should definitely check out. And then I guess the big recommendation this week is a movie that I have already, I've already talked about, but it's Springsteen on Broadway. It's on Netflix. It's the final performance of Springsteen's 236 show run on Broadway. And essentially, Kevin, this is just him with a guitar for about two and a half hours sharing stories from his life. Now, he, he wrote his book, Born to Run, and it came out, uh, I don't know, a couple years ago. I've read part of it. And so he's, he's detailing some of those, those stories. And it's fascinating to hear what he talks about. Uh, he sings some songs. Uh, his wife comes on at one point and sings with him. Uh, it's, it's sort of a nice touch, but he doesn't really discuss, uh, how he kind of rose to stardom, uh, his big break when he released this album and that album. He basically tells stories about growing up, about his family, about meeting his wife, about reconciling with his father, and about going back to, to his hometown, which is fascinating when you think about fame and you think about fortune and you think about all that what what really matters uh, and then springsteen ends the concert and near the end of his concert he recites the lord's prayer and he talks about his his catholic upbringing and 
you know, you can read in his book, Born to Run, he, he says he has a personal relationship with Jesus. He defines that differently than I would define that. Uh, and so there is this, this disagreement there, but there's still something that he holds on to. And when he says the Lord's Prayer at the end of this performance, there's, there's something really just kind of powerful, uh, that happens. So anybody who's interested in Springsteen, definitely check out Springsteen on Broadway. This really kind of intimate, uh, performance, uh, that I, I think is, I think it's really great. And it's directed by Tom Zimney who's also directing a concert film, I guess a performance film for uh, Springsteen's Western Stars, an album uh, that just came out that's that's really very good. Well, as I get more into investigating Springsteen and, and learning more about him in the wake of Blinded by the Light, I might just have to check that out. I have heard good things about the Broadway show elsewhere, so it's good to add your recommendation to that file. I'll have to get around to it. Yeah, and it's, you know, those tickets, from what I understand, he's such a small audience. Uh, we're, we're so expensive, so it's kind of cool that we get to uh, experience that, you know, through through Netflix. Listeners, next week... We are, we're taking off. We're going to take a little bit of a breather. So use that as an opportunity to rate and review the podcast. Do it on iTunes. Just search seeing and believing. Give us a star rating. Type out a review. We'd also love it. Catch up on a past episode and send us some feedback. We would, we'd love to hear your thoughts, especially if you're listening to maybe an older episode. Maybe you're catching up with a movie that was in theaters that you missed and you want to go back and hear our review. We'd love to hear thoughts on that. So we'll be off next week week and uh it's gonna be it's gonna be a, a different couple of weeks but i'm excited kevin i'm really excited for this year to get cranking up uh the last half of the year because there are a number of films that i'm looking forward to it's been a little bit of a dry summer but but i i feel like everything's going to to get into high gear here really soon yeah, I'm I'm with you. The early part of this year, if I'm being frank, has been a little bit disappointing to me, but I'm looking ahead to the slate that's coming in the back half of the year. We've got Ad Astra, the new James Gray. We've got a whole bunch of stuff coming up. So maybe when we do our uh, award season movie preview at some point in the the next month or so, we can get into what we're really looking forward to there. I'm definitely got uh, a list that's growing and growing as time goes on. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm really excited. Just some of those that are coming out and Ad Astra. It's we, you know, we talked about it because originally it was slated for a summer release, and how just pumped I am about that. And I did, I hadn't even seen the trailer yet. And after watching the trailer, I'm, I'm even more excited. Listeners. We want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristinPopCulture.com. Our fearless producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.